Well, good evening, folks. How are you tonight? It is good, good, good to see you in the house of the Lord. Amen? Um, I got to be honest, I'm a man of faith, I'm a pastor, but I also realized when we felt God laying it on our hearts to have a revival here at this time, well aware that it's been over 30 years since we've had a revival at this service, and I thought, Lord, I'm going to do it, but is anybody going to show up and look at you tonight? Amen? And it's not just your presence here. It's your sense of anticipation and expectation of what God is going to do in your life and through your life. And I'm excited about that. As we are starting this first night, I am thrilled and honored to have someone who is definitely not a stranger here, a long relationship here with Mount Perrin North and Mount Perrin churches in general, but a personal relationship that extends back to, uh, even to my days when I was in Birmingham before I came back here. He has been um, just a, a fabulous speaker. He is a wonderful preacher, but he's been a counselor and a mentor to me, and he has been so much to so many people, and he is going to bless us tonight. So I want you to give a great Mount Perrin North welcome home to Dr. Mark Rutland. Good morning. Good evening. Hello, hello. Hello, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. What a nice welcome. Thank you. And what a gracious introduction. For your pastor to call me a mentor, I am blessed. I would be delighted to take the blame for Kirk Walters anywhere. <laughs> well, you're a jolly crew tonight. It's great to be with you. It's great always to be here, and especially uh, in revival-type service. I'm usually here in a Sunday morning service. It's nice to be here when I don't have a time limit. <laughs> so if Eutychus is in the window, he better move now. Well, you are cranked up, man. It's wonderful to be here. Let me, uh, let me just say to you that uh, in the atrium as you exit, there is a book table there, and I want to tell you about the books that are there very quickly and then get right straight into the Word. Uh, this book has been uh, one of our biggest sellers ever. This is David the Great. It's the life and leadership of King David. It's been a huge, huge seller for us, and I'm, I'm really glad of that. One reason is because we tapped into a reading market that... Christian books are difficult to touch. Uh, any Christian publisher will tell you Christian books are written by women for women. And uh, regardless, regardless of what you women think, some men can read. And <laughs> we started to put pictures in this one. We <laughs> but uh, women read this. It's been great. We enjoy that. And, and men have loved it. Why wouldn't they love it? David was a man's man. This was, a, this was a tough guy, and uh, you would love it. I was working on that book in Israel, as a matter of fact. I went there. I've been to Israel 48 times, and I went there that time just to do research on the book. I wanted to do some geographical research. I didn't want to write in the book that David marched south when it was north. In the, inter, in the Internet world, somebody will catch you, and... So I was there, and I was at the Sea of Galilee working on the manuscript, sitting at an outside picnic table, and I was editing, slide the page over. I looked up. There was an Israeli woman standing there, and she said, 
are you from America? And I said, yes. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm editing a book I'm working on. She said, what's it about? And I said, David. And she said, I'm in Israel, speaking to an Israeli. She said, David who? <laughs> and I said, well, King David, the, the king of Israel. She stepped back like I'd touched her with a cattle prod. And she got a horrible look on her face. And she said, why would you write a book about that bloody man? And she stormed off. And I thought to myself, what a man. Okay, hombre, what a man. 3,000 years after his death, he can still make a woman that angry. <laughs> so I hope you'll enjoy David the Great. Buy it for a man in your life who can read. This is uh, one of our newest books. It's called Of Kings and Prophets. Uh, it's doing very well. It's a book about the intersection between supernatural authority and secular power. And it uses the conflict between the Old Testament kings and the prophets that spoke to them. I hope you'll enjoy it. It's gone real well. And this book, uh, really, in many ways, this book began at Mount Perrin. Uh, so it's a new book. I didn't write it there, but it was Dr. Paul Walker, really, uh, God rest his soul, that um, introduced me to the whole concept of Pentecostal counseling, of spirit-filled counseling. And this book is really an anthem to spirit-filled counseling. It's called The Courage to Be Healed. Of course, we believe in physical healing. We pray for it and believe. Uh, but I believe that the greater challenge in healing is often the healing of damaged emotions, emotional healing. And that's what this book, in, in emotional healing, the greater variable is not faith, it's courage. And that's what this book is about. I hope you'll get them and enjoy them. Um, it probably doesn't matter to you to hear this. It matters to me to say it. I do not take one penny from any of these books, from speaking, honoraria like this, love offerings, I'm on a salary as the executive director of the National Institute of Christian Leadership and everything else, all speaking engagements, love offering, honoraria, book sales. There's no smoke and mirrors. Hundreds of thousands of books we've sold worldwide. It all goes to support our girls' homes in Southeast Asia and West Africa. So when the service is over, go out there to the book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. Forget about Dave Ramsey. <laughs> Refinance your house. Steal the children's lunch money. Come on. You guys are ready. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? 
And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene and, the Gre- and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said these men are full of new wine, new wine, cheap wine, popsicle wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, or nine o'clock in the morning. Good old practical Simon Peter. No highfalutin theology here. He just said, look, it's nine in the morning. How are we going to get 120 people so drunk they can't talk plain by nine in the morning? There's not that much thunderbird in all of Jerusalem. <laughs> Verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We sense the nearness of you in the worship in the fellowship, in the laughter, the air we feel is pregnant with the Spirit. Breathe on us. Deal with us. Search us. Crack open all the locked cabinets. Rush in over the threshold of our souls. Deal with us deep within. Brush aside all the all of our carefully constructed mechanisms of self-defense and defenseless before you. Oh, that we might hear from you. We believe you for it. We thank you for it in advance in the wonderful name Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. Whatever happens in any given event cannot be explained fully in terms of all the concomitant things that happen. There may be all kinds of things that happen, but none of them individually nor all of them corporately may explain what actually happened. Now that I've got you confused, let me show you what I mean. Let's suppose that Pastor Kirk and I go to see a, a really good college football game. And we're enjoyed as we're coming out in the parking lot. We're greeted by somebody from some godforsaken foreign country where they've never really seen high-quality football. I don't know, Michigan or someplace. And (laughs) and somebody says to us, what happened in there? We say, well, that was American football. That's football. And... They say, yeah, but what happened? What happened in there? I say, well, what happened is there are five men with bill capped, striped shirts, whistles on straps around their necks, if you want to, and yellow flags in their pockets. 
If you want to really understand football, you find a field that is defined 100 yards by 50 yards, get out in the middle of it and run up and down. And by sheer whim and vagary, having nothing to do with anything actually happening on the field, whenever the fancy overtakes you, blow the whistle and throw the yellow flag in the air. And you'll have football. Now, it did happen, didn't it? There's the back judge, line judge, headlinesman. It's all there. They're all there. But one can't really explain football in terms of the officials. Pastor, on the other hand, stares at me like I'm crazy. And he says, that's not what happened. What happened was that there were 12 beautiful little college girls in short skirts jumping <laughs> up and... We'll not pursue that any further. But irrespective of what the Dallas Cowboys would have us believe, one cannot truly explain the nature of the contest in terms of the cheerleaders. They happened, but it's not what happened. Now the question for us tonight is, what happened at Pentecost? Why are some people even called Pentecostals? What, what is the word Pentecost? What happened on that day? about which we just read in Acts chapter 2. What really happened? Now, there were a lot of things that happened. They, there were some exciting pyrotechnics that went on in that room. I'm not going to tell you they're all going to happen in here. On the other hand, <laughs> I can't promise you they won't. But let's suppose they did. Let's suppose that right now, a, a tornado, the sound of a tornado, the sound only of a tornado, roared through the room, the sound of 10 locomotives, just a, a powerful tornado, the sound rushed through the room, not a hair on your head ruffled by a breeze, but the sound of a, of a tornado. Wouldn't that be exciting? Might scare the liver out of you, but wouldn't it be exciting? And no sooner is that gone than right up in the top of the ceiling there is the boiling, tumultuous, flat, circling power of the Shekinah glory. And it whirls off, and over each head, there comes to rest a dancing, visible, physical tongue of fire dancing over every head. You say, whoa, whoa, I don't want one. I'm just visiting tonight. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You get one. You're here. No sooner is that gone than you find yourself standing up and preaching the wonders of God in both the tongues of men and of angels. Now, as happened there what would happen here. Soon there would be cars parked from this building to Tallapoosa. There would be thousands and thousands of people as the noise of this, the word of this is noised abroad. And as you leave, someone would say to you, what happened in there? Be careful how you answer. If you answer only in terms of the things that happened, you may actually misguide someone. What happened? If you say, well, it was the sound of wind. It was just wind. They would say, oh, it was just a political convention. <laughs> but would their heart be stirred? Or you might say, fire. Brother, we, we saw fire, visible tongues of fire over every head in the place. Their curiosity might be piqued, but would their conscience be pricked? Or you might say, 
I stood up and preached the glories of God in the tongues of men and of angels. And they might say, well, that's good for you. Trust me, that's what many of them would say. So what really happened? One cannot fully understand what happened at Pentecost in terms of these things which happened. They did happen. But none of them individually nor all of them together can explain what really happened at Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? The first thing is that something came to be in the earth which had never been before. And that was the spirit-filled corporate body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church, was born at Pentecost. As the church moves away, backs away, is intimidated by, embarrassed by, or withdraws from the, to the extent that the church withdraws from the fire of Pentecost, the church redefines itself in terms of its own power. It's not to say that the church powerless in the Holy Spirit can't be even an efficacious organization in the planet. We can do great things. You can sponsor little league teams and have food baskets and all the rest of it. But if without the power of the Holy Spirit, the church becomes nothing but a glorified Kiwanis club. The church was born at Pentecost. We cannot redefine ourselves absent the breath of God. We were born at Pentecost. It is there that the church came to be. Secondly, it is there that the church came to be and its proper arena of ministry was defined as the supernatural. These gifts, these empowerments, these wonderful, wonderful operations of the Holy Spirit, from that moment, it is clear that God intends the church to move in the realm of the supernatural. The wind, the fire, those things are clear indications. This is not going to be business as usual. The church was born at Pentecost and the church was born in power. When we begin to feel that we can operate, achieve success, do whatever we do in the church under our own power, we deprive ourselves of one of the defining realities of Pentecost. The power of the Holy Spirit is the power that makes the church work in the realm where we should work, which is the supernatural. The third thing that happened was something that happened to the individuals that were there, the people themselves. There were not just a, it was not just a, a corporate experience. What happened to the folks that were there? The, the ideal Subject for study in that is Simon Peter. He is the one who stands and speaks with such authority. I didn't read his entire sermon, but he speaks with boldness and power, defining clearly, stating what is the power of of the Holy Spirit in that moment at Pentecost. He relates it to in a fairly obscure passage of Scripture in the second chapter of Joel and quotes it at great length. We have absolutely no indication that Jesus or anybody else told him on the day of Pentecost, quote the second chapter of Joel. Or at least he paraphrases it very close to quoting it. So Simon Peter stands up and speaks powerfully. Now everybody in the world is glad I'm not God. But if I had been God, I never would have let Simon Peter preach Pentecost sermon. 
Simon Peter denied Jesus only 50 days before. Only 50 days, less than two months previous, he had denied that he knew Jesus and denied him with a curse. Simon Peter didn't even go out to Calvary. John did, but not Simon Peter. Denying Christ and then filled with remorse, Simon Peter hid under his bed and cried like a baby. But I know if I'd have been God, I'd have said, you can come, you can be in the room, but don't talk. <laughs> Sit over there. My mother is at John's house. John, you stand up and preach. But I think God specifically chose Simon Peter to show that the sanctifying empowerment of the Holy Spirit changes people instantly. Simon Peter stands up and he doesn't just preach. Listen to the power. He is standing before people that only 50 days earlier screamed for Christ to be crucified and Simon Peter lowers the guns to deck level and loads with grape shot. He says, this same Jesus whom you crucified, Christ has raised from the dead. The mouse roared. You want to say to Simon Peter, where did that come from? Why wasn't that here 50 days ago? Because he would say, the Holy Spirit had not come and filled me 50 days ago. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit was not just a group thing. It was an individual, people, persons, men and women who were filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a personal empowerment that happens when Pentecost comes. Now, Pentecost itself, the feast of Pentecost is not a New Testament invention. It's not a Christian thing. It's a Jewish feast. The Feast of Weeks, Shabbat. Um, it's Pentecost when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek in the Septuagint. They had to find a word for Shavuot, so they, they took the Feast of Weeks. So it's seven weeks and one day. Seven times seven is 49, and the day would make 50. So that's 50. Any Greek word with the prefix penta has to do with the derivative of five. The pentagon is a five-sided building, a pentagram. Uh, pentathlon is, is people who compete in an athletic event that has five different events in it. So they called it Pentecost. But it was a Jewish feast. All of the people, everybody in the story is Jewish, all of them. And they are all there to celebrate a Jewish feast, just as they have, just as their parents did, just as their ancestors did, all the way back to Moses. So I don't believe for one moment, there is no indication in Scripture at all that for one moment, they woke up and said, man, Acts chapter 2. We have the New Testament. We tend to read it and impose it on the people there. They hadn't read Acts chapter 2. I don't believe that five minutes to nine, Simon Peter was saying, well, oh, five minutes. The Holy Ghost is coming. They were simply celebrating the feast of both Torah and of harvest that had been celebrated since remotest antiquity. And the Bible says, suddenly from heaven. What an odd turn of phrase. They've waited from the prophecy of Joel for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit hundreds and hundreds of years. But when it comes, it comes suddenly. The power of the Holy Spirit filled the room. The church was created. The church was created in supernatural power. Individuals were touched by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. 
sanctifying grace came upon them. It doesn't mean that it made them entirely perfect instantly. Oh, the debates in church circles over the process or immediacy of sanctification. Oh, my lands. It's, it's a tedious debate. So when the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes in us, are we sanctified? Are we being sanctified in process? Or will we be sanctified in heaven? Yes. Don't tell me... Don't tell me when the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes that nothing happens. Don't tell me nothing happens. God comes with cleansing, sanctifying fire. Power of God comes. Don't tell me nothing happens. By the same token, don't tell me that everything God is going to do in your life happens. He's still got some stuff to do. The proof of that is you're here. <laughs> Furthermore, the the effulgent reality of that is going to be manifested in heaven when we receive our glorified bodies. The, the power of the Holy Spirit is called in the New Testament the earnest of our redemption. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting term? It's a real estate term. So this is the earnest money that the contract is going to be fulfilled later on. Right now, I'm going to give you the earnest money. Now, I don't know that they had a clear view that that was going to happen in Pentecost, but they knew it was going to happen. Because in the gospel according to John, Jesus meets with the disciples after his resurrection, and it says this, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. But there's no indication in Scripture that they did. Not then. I believe and I believe that it's clear that in that moment, Jesus was speaking prophetically. That he was saying, the moment is going to come when you'll hear the breath. When the Holy Spirit comes, don't reject him, receive him. And I believe when that wind blew through the room, that there were some in the room that said, oh, there's the breath of God. When the fire came, others in the room said, oh, there's the sanctifying fire. When the power of the Holy Spirit began to fill them, they knew immediately what it was because Simon Peter, who was called by the, he's not a rabbi. Remember, he was identified for us in the New Testament as ignorant and unlearned. If Simon Peter was ignorant, we need a baptism of ignorance. He begins to spontaneously quote Joel chapter 2. Something inside of him remembers this passage of Scripture from Joel chapter 2. It was there. Everybody knew it. I'm not saying it wasn't known. But it was a relatively obscure passage in terms of the broader scope of Judaism, which was because it confused everybody. We live in the 21st century in egalitarian culture, but you have to remember in pre-Christian Judaism, it was a highly patriarchal society. And that passage says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he turns the, whole, the old order upside down. Young men will prophesy like young people, like older prophets. Here's the passage I love. Your old men will dream dreams. That's upside down. Old men don't dream dreams. We have memories. 
But God says, I'll make the young people act like gray-bearded prophets. And I'll make the old people have visions and dreams of youth. And he says, I will pour out my spirit upon, here's the, here was the troublesome phrase, all flesh. All flesh, even your servants, even your handmaids, even the girls. Even the women will receive the Holy Spirit. What? So the second chapter of Joel kind of was there. Everybody knew it, but it lay on the clipping room floor of Judaism until Simon Peter recalls it spontaneously in the, in the arena of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What happened at Pentecost? On the Jewish feast of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on 120. The church was born. People were baptized in power, and the supernatural was delineated as the proper theater of operation of the church. Not then, until the rapture of the church. Now, that's not the way I was educated. I wonder if there aren't some here, perhaps, who remember when a young Methodist preacher came to be the associate pastor at Mount Perrin. I did in 1988. But it had only been 13 years previously. In 1975, my life was a shipwreck. A shipwreck. I was a Methodist minister. I had been saved as a teenager. I felt genuinely and authentically called to preach even supernaturally called to preach. I wanted to do it right. I went into the ministry. I was raised in a very nominal Methodist home, two or three times a year Methodist home. So when I felt called to go into the ministry, the only kind of ministry I knew was the Methodist church. I became a Methodist preacher. I didn't even know you people were out here. I became a Methodist pastor. I was finished at the University of Maryland where I graduated with my bachelor's degree, moved here to Atlanta with my wife, Allison, and took my Master of Divinity at, at Emory University and later subsequently a doctorate, and I wanted to do it right. I took all the courses I was told. I wasn't some raging liberal. I was an evangelical. I, I wanted to preach. I wanted the church. I wanted to do right. So I did what, the, what they told you. You do what your professors tell you. I studied, I, I took the things, and I was taught that Pentecost was a, was a museum. It was a, a look at what the church used to be like, but was no more. That those were the things that we needed, the supernatural, the empowerments that we needed back then. I was taught that the gifts of the Spirit disappeared with the death of the last apostle. Now I see that's not only biblically indefensible, it's absolutely absurd intellectually. You can see that, don't you? If, it, if the gifts of the Spirit disappeared with the death of the last apostle, they weren't the gifts of the Spirit, they were the gifts of the apostles. The Holy Ghost hasn't died. But I, I, I wanted to do it right. I believed it, I studied, I heard. They told me how to preach. I wore an ankle-length Geneva gown. I preached the first seven years of my life in a long black robe. I looked like a buzzard with a gland problem. I, I, I did the whole thing. I, tra I trained acolytes. I, I trained them, you know. Bobby, you come in from this side to light the candle. Howard, you come from this side. No, Howard, turn the other way. You're going to set Bobby's hair on fire. I, 
I wanted to do it right. You understand? But the, the harder I worked at it, the more I wanted to do it right, there was no power in it. It, it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't go. Imagine that tonight, it's just a fantasy. It's not going to happen. But imagine that tonight we said, there's somebody here, and on the bottom of your chair, there's a, a sticker. And if that sticker is on your chair, Mount Perrin North is going to give you a brand new Mercedes-Benz. I just saw five people look under their chairs. I told you, it's just an example. One guy said, I'm going to look anyway. Just... So imagine that you win. Imagine that you win. And we all pretend to be happy for you. <laughs> Title, keys, everything. And I leave and I don't come back for a year. And when I come back, I see you, friend, and your cheeks are sunken, bags under your eyes, your clothes are ripped. I say, friend, you look horrible. What is the matter with you? And you say, oh, Dr. Rutland, it's that, it's that Mercedes Benz. Just made my life miserable. I say, that's, a, that's one of the most valuable automobiles in the world. Yes, I know I got it. It was a gift. I received it, and I value it in that sense, but it's ruined my life. I said, well, I don't understand. He says, well, I can't. Sorry, I don't have time to explain it to you. I got to go to work. It takes me six hours. I said, where do you work? He says, about eight blocks away. <laughs> I watch him. He goes out, kneels down behind that Mercedes, and starts pushing it. In a minute, his foot slips, and he falls down, and the bends rolls back over, and boom, 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 boom. And I walk out there, and I say, what is the matter with you? And I get in the car and crank the engine and put it in gear and drive, and he lays there with tire tracks across his face, and he says, oh, I couldn't make my own Christianity go let alone the ministry, I was pushing my own Christianity uphill. And every time my foot slipped, it fell back on me. And there's a result of that. When you're trying to push your own Christianity uphill, ministry won't work. Seven years. Seven years. I know that you think the worst thing in the world is sitting through a dead, unanointed sermon. I, I know you hate that. That's not the worst thing. Preach one. <laughs> Preach one every Sunday. Preach one Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Seven years. I had nothing to show for it. Nothing. Well, that's not entirely true. We had a, we had a great men's softball team. We'd, every year, we just beat the Baptist like a two-year-old at a Walmart. We just... But what is that? What, what is that? Seven years. Empty. I struggled since junior high school with varying waves of depression. By 1975, the waves had become a tsunami. Allison and I have now been married 55 years, but at that time, our marriage was deeply wounded. We were struggling. I became the associate pastor at a church in Atlanta, a large church in Atlanta. It was a great appointment for me. 
I became the highest paid member of my graduating class from Emory. I was the president of my class. It was a great appointment, great parsonage, wonderful salary, and my level of misery went up astronomically. Our marriage was, our marriage was hanging by thread. Both of us just waiting for the other one to say the word divorce. My misery and depression made Allison's life virtually unbearable. I became angrier and my sense of emptiness increased. My struggle with the ministry was a love-hate relationship. To make matters worse, I found that the lead pastor had experienced what he called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of it, he and I were daggers drawn. He was pushing, as, as he understood it, toward Pentecost, and I was saying that's wrong, I don't believe in that, none of that is real, and you can imagine what was happening in our office. It was extremely difficult. By 1975, the collapse in my own life became unmanageable. In 1975, I attempted suicide twice, once with a pistol and once with a car. I realized that the next time I would succeed. I realized you can't come that close that often. Sooner or later, the gun goes off. My level of depression was swamping me. In the middle of all that, my wife became interested in the charismatic renewal movement. And that simply widened our rift. I came home one night and she was in the living room reading and she was weeping. And it just made me angry. I said, what now? What are you crying about? She said, I've been reading this book by Pat Boone, talking about the Holy Spirit. I said, my God, baby, Pat Boone, Pat Boone. I said, Pat Boone, he's nuts. I said, Pat Boone's baptizing movie stars in the swimming pool. What are you talking about? I grabbed the book out of her hand and I just sailed it like a Frisbee across the living room and it hit the floor and fell down. And I said, now, don't ever bring this up to me again. I'm not spending the rest of my career in the Methodist church being labeled as the guy whose wife talks in tongues. So I said, you can just put that out of your mind. Then the lead pastor at my church, my boss, if you will, and two or three other guys in the Methodist church who had experienced the touch of the Holy Spirit organized a conference only for Methodist pastors in the North Georgia Conference. They called it Power for Ministry Today. They invited a couple of speakers from out of town. They couldn't find anybody in, they couldn't find any Methodists in Georgia to explain it to them. So, and Dr. Bowen told me he wanted me to go. I said, well, I'm not going. He said, well, actually, you are going. He said, you work for me. We'll pay for the room, all your expenses, but you are going. I was so angry. John Wesley said he went to Aldersgate experience reluctantly. He had a gift for understatement. I was so angry, I was furious at being made to go to this. So what do you do when you don't want to go to something? You go late. So I went to the Ramada Hotel in downtown Atlanta late. 120 Methodist preachers signed up for that conference. I should have 
suspected something immediately when the registration was 120. <laughs> when I got there, some nincompoop for 120 registrations had set up 120 chairs. So there were no empty chairs. The only empty chair was on the front row. I came in and sat on the front row. I was just seething with anger. There's a little man sitting next to me, wire rim glasses, his Bible on his lap. And he reached over. He said, we're going to have a great conference. I said, yeah. <laughs> we sang two hymns. Not, not worship chorus. What, wasn't this kind of worship we had tonight? Two Methodist hymns. A professor at Emory University that I knew a little bit talked about how God had touched his eyes and healed his eyesight. Two hymns and a testimony on healing. And then they said, now, our guest speaker tonight is Dr. David Siemens from the First Methodist Church in Wilmore, Kentucky, which is basically on the campus at Asbury College. We've asked him to come and teach on the Holy Spirit. The little man next to me said, okay, now, you pray for me. And he got up and came up and you can you can just feel when God is moving in on you he got up and he said I know you've asked me to come here tonight and speak on the Holy Spirit but he said I feel like the Lord has told me to go in a different direction and I said, yes and he said instead I want to preach on sin in the ministry I, I know you've probably had people say to you after you preach something, boy, you really stepped on my toes. Have you had, you really stepped on my toes. That little man whipped me with a bicycle chain. <laughs> it, was, it was awful. It was excruciating. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a worship service under conviction, but you feel like it, everybody's looking. There, there are people, this is the guy right here. <laughs> it was awful. It was awful. When he got finished, he didn't give an altar call. Just had a prayer, and I knew exactly what to do. I went out to my car and drove all the way home. I didn't even go to the hotel room that my church had paid for. When I got home, Allison said, you, well, how long did you come home? Here's what I said, oh, God, baby, they were crazy. They were crazy. It was nuts. We sang two hymns, had a testimony, and a man preached on holiness. And I said, oh, they can call themselves Methodists if they want to. And nothing but a bunch of jack-legged Pentecostals, all of them. I said, it was so crazy, I was embarrassed to be there. I said, anyway, I couldn't go tomorrow even if I wanted to. I have to mow the lawn. <laughs> it was December in Atlanta. <laughs> I got up the next morning, put on a coat, gloves. I went out. My, I, my breath. When I cranked the lawnmower, I'm walking up. At that time, I had a Baptist neighbor on one side and a Catholic on the other. Don't you know they hit the windows? Come here, Margaret. He's gone over the edge. <laughs> I'm walking up and down in the front yard, and there's no grass coming out of the blower. And I just felt like a fool. I said, this is stupid. I've got a four-credit A at the postgraduate level in pneumatology. I think I know about the Holy Spirit. I said, I'm not going to let a bunch of nutcases intimidate me about the Holy Spirit. I went in and got a shower, got dressed, and started out of the house. 
Here's the thing I don't understand about women. Why won't they just leave it alone? I started out of the house and Allison stepped out of the kitchen and she said, decide to go back? God, murder filled my soul. I drove across Atlanta like Batman in the mobile. I screeched up in the parking lot of that hotel, got my Bible and got out and I said, I hope somebody just says Holy Spirit to me. I hope they just say it. Well, by that time, of course, the morning session was over when I got upstairs to the ballroom and I opened the door as the morning session ended and I was shocked. There were guys laughing. There were some of them were weeping. They were talking. Some were down on their knees in the hotel ballroom praying with each other. We didn't pray with each other at general conference. Now we're going to pray in a hotel. I I said, whoa. I looked around, and there was a nice, orderly, kind of safe Methodist preacher, a friend of mine, whose name was also Mark, by the way. And I saw him, and I said, okay, I can get a reasonable answer. I went over to him, and I said, Mark, what in the world has happened in here? And this nice, safe Methodist preacher grabbed me by my lapels and screamed in my face. And he said, Jesus has healed me. And I felt it was time for my seminary voice. I said, now, Marcus, when you say Jesus has healed me, I mean, when you say Jesus has healed me, what are you trying to communicate? How do I plug into that? How do I connect? You laugh. There are people that listen to that every Sunday. He stared at me like I was speaking Russian. He said, Mark, you know I'm deaf in my left ear which I knew he had had his inner ear removed surgically because of an infection when he was a child. He said, not the man that spoke last night, but the preacher from California. He just prayed for me, and my ear is healed. I can hear. He said, furthermore, I've hated my father since I was a child, and today God has filled me with the Holy Spirit. He's taken all that away. I'm filled with love and forgiveness. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He said, let's go to lunch. So we went downstairs to the restaurant right there in the hotel. And of course, by that time, every table was taken, except one. There was a table with two people and four chairs. It was the speaker from the night before, Dr. Siemens, and the speaker from California. (laughs) Dr. Ralph Wilkerson from Melody Land Christian Center in Anaheim. I, I thought he was a nut. In the first place, he named his church Melody Land. No, no, you cannot do that. Not in the, there's no such thing as Melody Land Methodist Church. First Methodist, Second Avenue Methodist, Calvary Methodist, Melody Land. Furthermore, he had on white shoes in December. Now, now that, no. So Mark and I went over and sat at the table with the two speakers. The food came And one of his men said to Mark, my friend, said, why don't you have the grace? I don't know how you pray in restaurants. You ever pinch the bridge of your nose so people think you got a headache? God, thank you for this food. Not Marcus. He said, oh, God, we thank you for this food. 
the wait staff all came out for ministry. I was humiliated. I wanted to say, I don't know these people. I, they have kidnapped me. When lunch was over, we went up for the afternoon session, and this time I got there early. I got on the back row. It was Ralph Wilkerson's turn to speak. I know Ralph has gone to be with Jesus and lived a complicated life, but I'm going to tell you that day, he was under a blaze of anointing. Stepped up and began to speak, and I was going to check him out. <laughs> Let's just see. He spoke for about 20 minutes, and he didn't say one thing that I didn't agree with. I said, well, this is all right. I, then 20 minutes in, he just flipped his Bible shut, and he said, well, that's enough of that. That's, a, that's enough of that? You can't end a Methodist sermon, that's enough of that. That's, that's enough of that? I said, he hadn't even read his poem yet. You can't do that. He said, we just don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit in a vacuum. And he said, Holy Spirit, fill this place. We beseech you. I'm telling you, the temperature in that room must have gone up 30 degrees. The power of God fell on us. Methodist preachers, not a layman in the room, fell on us. People began weeping. People were crying. People were praying. I knew exactly what to do. I hit the door at a dead run. I went all the way to my car. I came back up. I went back. The third time I said, oh, this is crazy. I came back in. Wilkerson said, God's going to give us some healing miracles now. I said, what? Have I stumbled into an insane asylum? And he called men out of the congregation of that group of Methodist preachers. And as the Lord would have it, he only called on people I knew. And he said to a friend of mine, he said, you, sir, God has revealed to me you've got diabetes. I knew he had diabetes. Shooting himself in the thigh with insulin twice a day to stay alive. How would Wilkerson know? He lives in Anaheim. He said, you've got diabetes. If you'll stand up, God's going to heal you. I was sitting in the back row. I actually sort of, I said, pfft, pfft. I said, Howard will never stand up. Pfft. Howard shot to his feet. And he said, something is happening. He said, something's happening. It's all over me. He said, I'm being healed. That was 1975 until the day of his death. Many, many years later, Howard never had diabetes. He never was on a diet ever again. Sealed immediately. said to another friend of mine who had glasses, his glasses were as thick as the bottom of ashtrays. He couldn't even read his own scripture. His wife had to come to the pulpit and read the scripture before he preached. He'd lean over like this. He said, friend, God's going to give you 20-20 vision. Take your glasses off. My friend pulled his glasses off and screamed like a woman. He threw his glasses. He said, my God, I can see, I can see. Man, that time I went all the way to my car. Standing there with my hand on the door handle of my car, shaking, shaking. I thought, this is crazy. Finally, I came back in one more time. And just as I came in, Wilkerson said, now God's going to give us a word of prophecy. I felt my head spinning. I said, what in the world can a word of prophecy be? I've, I, I studied 1 Corinthians at the doctoral level. 
and I'd never heard the phrase word of prophecy used in a functional sentence. I said, what can he even be talking about, word of prophecy? He said, someone has received a word of prophecy and I want you to stand up and give it. And a man right here on the front row stood up, <laughs> the most liberal pastor in the North Georgia Conference of Methodist Church. I don't know if he even believed in the resurrection. It was a classic case of Balaam's donkey. <laughs> he stood up, the color drained out of his face. His face was white as a ghost. He raised his hand and he said, well, boys, it's me. He said, the crazy thing is, I, I don't even believe in this. But he said, I was sitting right there and it came in my mind in a moment that man's gonna call for a word of prophecy. Stand up and open your mouth and I will fill it. He lifted his hand up and he said, I'm going to do a great thing, says the Lord. And it begins now. And when he said that, people began to weep. I fell forward out of my chair like somebody had hit me in the back of the head with a hammer. I fell on the floor. I began to weep. I began to cry out to God, have mercy on me. Wilkerson, God bless his heart, came out and got down on the floor with me and picked me up like a baby, put my head on his shoulder, and I braced myself. I said, he's not going to trick me. And if he'd have said anything but what he said, I probably could have resisted. If he'd have said, all right, we're going to shake tongues out of you, my friend. You know what he said? He said, brother, pastor, I love you. Maybe if we'd love people, quit trying to make people do what we want, maybe some folks could get the Holy Ghost. He said, brother, pastor, I love you. I said, if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. I said, my life's a wreck. My marriage is on edge of a divorce and I committed, I tried to commit suicide on Thanksgiving day. I said, I, I had a gun in my mouth. He said, don't you wanna receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I opened my mouth to say, no. No, what's the matter with you people? No, I don't believe in that and I don't want that. And I heard my own mouth. Say, yes, yes, that's what I want. <laughs> I realized for once my spirit had cried out and not my intellect. And he said, all right, pray with me. He led me in a simple little prayer. Lord, I give you my life, everything I am, all that I have, my marriage, my ministry, everything. I surrender to you and I ask you to baptize me in the Holy Spirit. Just that. He said, now I'm going to lay hands on you. And again, I braced myself. I said, oh, here it comes. I, I had been told that Pentecostal evangelists had secret buzzers that they, they kept in the palms of their hands. And then when people came forward, they pop them with it and buzz them. That's why they fell over. And I said, oh, God, he's going to buzz me. I know he's going to buzz me. And I just braced myself. And he reached over and put three fingers on my forehead. And he said, okay, son, in the name of Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know what happened to 119 Methodist preachers in that room. I don't give other people's testimonies. I will tell you, you can go to the history or the, whatever they call it in a newspaper, files of a newspaper, and you can find that headline in the religion section of the 
Atlanta Journal-Constitution the next day. It said 150 Methodist preachers received the Holy Spirit. That's the headline. One of the only times when the secular press has given us false advertisement in our favor. I don't know what happened to those other guys. All I know is, on December the 5th, 1975, an empty, broken, suicidal Methodist preacher fell on the floor, and God filled me with the Holy Spirit. That I know. From that moment, from that moment, everything changed. Everything changed. I felt like I was wired. I, I got up and went out to the lobby to call my wife. I went to a payphone. I see young people here. You don't have any clue. <laughs> payphone. No, never. There was a time, son, when there were cords that came out. No, it's never mind. <laughs> Do you ever make a phone call when you're overexcited? How you talk too loud? I said, Allison, it's Mark. Don't go to sleep. Stay up till I get home. Other end of the line, she said, you're stoned. <laughs> I said, baby, I'm not drunk this time. I promise I'm not drunk. But I said, something's happened. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. She said, mm-hmm. I got home that night. She was waiting up, arms crossed. I said, baby, I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What you wanted, what you talked about. She said, mm-hmm. I woke up the next morning, Sunday morning, to show you a lack of faith. I thought it would be gone. I just thought, it, you know, that I'd shot up on Jesus and it would be gone. I woke up the next morning and I was so excited. I was so thrilled. And I told Allison, I, I, I'm going to walk to church. She said, What? It's cold. She said, I said, I feel like I'm going to walk to church. It's maybe a half a mile. I'll just walk. As I walked along, the sky was blue. Blue. The trees, were, the pine trees were green. I thought I was having an LSD flashback. It was just, it was so wild. I said, Lord, you have cleaned up the world. He said, the world wasn't dirty. He said, I have peeled the film off of your slimy little soul. As I walked along, I felt the crazy, irrepressible urge to giggle. And I just pleaded with God. I said, please, I've ruined my career. I spoke in tongues in front of 119 colleagues. <laughs> I'm finished. I've, my wife thinks I've lost my mind. Please don't make me giggle. As I walked along, anybody here else have a misspent youth? Do you know what I'm talking about when you're, when you're stoned and everything's funny? Do you remember that? And you think, you know, the cops are coming up the back stairs. <laughs> Howard just shot his foot off and everything's funny. So I got to this, I got to the sacristy and Dr. Bolin and I are robing up for the morning service, putting our robes on. And Dr. Bolin says, how's everything? I said, good. It was Dr. Bolin's turn to preach that morning. 
and I was to be the liturgist. The liturgist, that's the one who guides the people through the liturgy, sing this, pray this, you know, that kind of thing. Everything was okay until we came to the Apostles' Creed. We kept the Apostles' Creed taped on the pulpit like this so that, you, you know, just in case you missed a line or something. Let us stand and unite our hearts together in this historic confession of the Christian faith. A thousand Methodists stood to their feet and began to lumber through the Apostles' Creed with our usual bovine enthusiasm. <laughs> I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And I looked down the page, and I saw the place where the train wreck was going to happen. <laughs> I saw it coming. As we got closer and closer, I just feel Finally came to the line and I threw my hands up the first time in my whole life I had ever raised my hands in church. I raised my hands and I said, I believe in the Holy Ghost. And a thousand Methodists just went. <laughs> Nobody had raised their voice in that church since the Civil War. That was... <laughs> and the Apostles' Creed was over. I stand there with my hands up, and I remember thinking, well, cat's out of the bag. <laughs> and I told them, Dr. Boland's preaching this morning, but it's my turn to preach tonight, and I'm going to tell you what's happened. Something's happened in the associate pastor's life. I'm going to tell you everything. If you don't want to hear it, don't come. But it's my turn tonight. When I got to church that night, it was packed. We'd had the balcony roped off for five years. It was packed. <laughs> I got there. The lady that led the music was there. She had a Cokesbury hymnal in her hand. She said, what should we sing? What should we sing? I said, you know, let's skip it. Just have a seat. I opened my Bible to Luke eleven thirteen, and I read this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more? Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And for the first time in my life, I preached without a typed, double-spaced manuscript. I just began to preach. You could hear a pin drop in the place. I told them what had happened. I told them everything. Everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. When I got finished, I said, now I'm going to have a prayer. If you want to receive what I've received, you come here to the front. If you don't, you're excused. You can just slip out and go to your car. They were just staring at me. So I bowed my head and began to pray, and I could hear them leaving. I could hear them going out, and I thought, I'm going to pray till the last one's gone. And then I looked up, and they were not leaving. They were coming forward. There were hundreds, hundreds. Precious Methodist people that were as hungry as I was, who came forward, tears streaming down their faces, hands raised, hands raised. I, this doesn't seem like anything to you. You can't understand what I'm telling you. Hands raised, weeping. And I knew two things. I had crossed a Rubicon. I knew there was no going back. I could never again experience a kind of ministry that didn't embrace this. The other thing was, I realized I had no idea what to do with these people. <laughs> it dawned on me I had no thought anybody would respond. And suddenly I realized I didn't know what to do. 
And I looked up, and right up the center aisle, right about where you are, there was a man sitting there who was a retired insurance salesman that had been trying to get me to go to a full gospel businessmen's meeting for years. I thought he was certifiably insane. I would have voted to Baker Act him. I thought he was nuts. And I looked up, and it's as if the entire church went away, and I could only see Harry. I turned my body pack off on my mic, and I said, every head bowed and every eye closed. And I just went up the aisle, Harry's standing like that, and he never opened his eyes. And I walked up there, I put my hand on his arm, and he said, you don't know what to do, do you? I said, oh, Harry, I, I need you. I need you. I don't know what to do. He said, he said, dismiss all the people and take the people that are seeking into the church fellowship hall, and I'll join you. Harry came in there, and that sweet, old, retired layman guided me through the first night of baptism of the Holy Spirit ministry that I'd ever experienced except what I received. He said, lead them in this prayer. Now I said, reach over and lay your hands on them. I was a Methodist minister. Ooh, that made I said, I can't, Harry, you know, the bishop would lay hands on you for ordination. That's bishop's job. I said, oh, Harry, I don't think I have the authority for this. He said, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I reach over and say, in the name of Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And when I looked up, Harry had left the room. I felt like that little kid, his dad runs along holding the back of his bicycle and runs along and then all of a sudden he lets go and you look back and your dad's at the end of the street. Harry was gone. And that was the beginning of Pentecostal ministry in the fellowship hall of a Methodist church with a retired layman. Over the next years, decades, Decades since 1975. I've traveled all over the world, preached on every inhabited continent of the globe multiple times each. I've been the associate pastor of one of the finest Pentecostal churches in the world. I was a Methodist minister. I never joined the church of God. I said to Dr. Walker, when he called me to be his associate, I said, you know I'm a Methodist. He said, well, I don't care if you don't. I've prayed with hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. I've seen signs and wonders. You understand this turned my world upside down because it was everything that I had preached against. I denounced it. I, God have mercy on my soul. I mocked it from the pulpit. Imagine being a, a paleontologist who goes all over America saying there's no such thing as dinosaurs. The dinosaurs are all gone. There's no such thing as dinosaurs. And you come home one day, and in your living room, there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> At that point, experiential reality and theory have run aground. I received everything I disbelieved in, preached against, denounced. It was all gone with the wind. Two weeks later, my wife received the Holy Spirit. The power of God, things moving in our lives. But if you ask me tonight, what difference has the baptism of the Holy Spirit made in your life? I would not tell you about signs or wonders or miracles or even gifts. I believe in all those. What I would tell you is 
I am no longer pushing my Christianity uphill under my own strength. And you shall receive power when that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall receive power. Now stay with me just a couple of more minutes. So what if you said to yourself tonight, I want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to be filled. I want this Pentecostal blessing to come into my life. If I come up there tonight and ask God to fill me with the Holy Spirit, what will happen to me? What will I experience? Beats me. I don't know. See, what we all want is to run our own experience. We all want to come forward. Jesus, I want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but you've got to do it this way. You've got to give me this feeling, or you've got to do that, or you can't do this. You can do this, but not that. In order to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have to write Jesus a blank check. You say, any way, anything, anyhow, I give you my life, and I want you to fill me with the Holy Spirit, however you do it. We not only don't get to run our own experience, listen to this, we don't get to run anybody else's. We have to let the Holy Spirit be as wonderfully unique in everybody else as he is in us. We come forward and we say, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit, however you do it. I've seen, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I wept. Tears poured out of me. Seven years of frustration and hurt and woundedness and, and depression. I, I wept like Niobe following after her children. When my wife received it, the one who had been seeking the I was resistant. My wife was, wanted it. When my wife received the Holy Spirit, it was the sweetest, gentlest thing you've ever seen. She just bowed her little head and said, oh, thank you, God, at last, at last. I've seen people weep, cry. First time I ever saw anybody laugh. I was preaching at the first United Methodist Church in Douglasville, Georgia, and a little lady, about 60 years old, came and knelt at the communion rail to receive the Holy Spirit. Pinched look on her face, kneeling at the communion rail. I went over to her and I said, ma'am, would you like to receive the Holy Spirit? She said, yes, I would. I prayed with her and laid my hand on her little gray head and she put her head back and laughed and I was so offended. I, I, I left the communion room, went up on the, I said, Lord, look at silly old woman laughing. I cried, she should cry. And the Lord said, what's the matter with you? She has lived her whole life like a clenched fist. And I've just given her my joy. I looked over at her, and it looked like Jesus was kneeling down beside her. And it looked like he was laughing. And it looked like he was laughing at me. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever saw anybody fall down. It scared the absolute wits out of me. See, you grow up in Pentecost, the things you take for granted. I never heard of such a thing in my life. I was preaching at a little tiny method, a little tiny uh, Pentecostal church in Mexico. I'd gone down there with independent missionaries, and first night I preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I was laying hands on people. One lady came up, great big lady. I mean, la gorda mucha. This is a big woman. <laughs> came up. 
and she wanted the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I reached up and touched her forehead, and she fell backward like a bowling pin from her ankle. <laughs> boom! And her head hit that bare concrete floor, just boom, 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 and it scared the wits out of me. I thought she had come up with hidden sin in her life, and God had killed her. I thought, oh, my God. And I was shaken. I went up on the platform and sat down. The little Pentecostal missionary came up and he said, now, Brother Rutland, that's all right. Everything's okay. She's been slain in the spirit. And I said, oh, God, I thought so. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the way we talk, but it doesn't, you understand? That's a very militant turn of phrase, slain in the spirit. I didn't even know he was armed. And... So I've seen people weep and laugh and cry and speak in tongues and well, none of that is what happens. That's all stuff that may happen in you, but it's not what happens. What happens is that God fills you with the Holy Spirit as he promised in the New Testament. As Jesus promised, listen to the words of Jesus. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Not to them that deserve it, not just to preachers, to them that ask him. Well, then, ask him. I mean, if this gift is for them that ask him, then ask him and believe and receive. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes all over the house? Heavenly Father, I thank you for these people who have come tonight seeking something from you. Lord, I believe you. Do a sweet work tonight. Some struggling with fear some with depression, some with darkness, some the sense of powerlessness, some who are longing for a fresh touch, some who fearful and afraid of the baptism of the Holy Spirit now find themselves hungry and thirsty. Come Holy Spirit. You know every one of them. You know every heart. You know those that are thinking, resisting, struggling right this minute, right in this room. You know their names. God, I thank you. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed all over the room, if you'd say, Dr. Mark, will you please pray for me? I need this. It's not just a matter of want. I need this. I need this baptism with the Holy Spirit. I need this gift of Pentecost. I need this. If that's you, then you lift your hand up right where you are, all over the room. Good, good. So many up there. Yes, up in the risers. Raise your hand. The lights are bright and the room is large. Yes, yes. Yes, so many, so many, so many, so many. Oh, God, thank you, praise you, so many, so many. Now listen, when I say amen to this prayer, we're going to stand up and we're going to begin to sing. People around you worshiping God, maybe their hands are raised, but not you. You have confessed your need and longing for this baptism. You're, the minute you stand, you're going to make your first step into the aisle. If you resist even a moment, you won't come. When you stand, your first step is going to be toward the aisle. If there are people between you and the aisle, turn to them and say, please let me out. Maybe they will come with you. But why would you hesitate 
when you know that it is the Lord who summons thee and no man. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and be healed. Amen. Let's stand as the team leads us right now. You come right now. up now and worship the Lord. Holy Spirit, thou art welcome. He is welcome. He's in the air. He's around us. He's surrounding us. Omnipotent Father of mercy and grace. we're going to change one word we're going to sing the same song but instead of this place we're going to sing thou art welcome in my life thou art welcome in my life this place might mean this building this place is us so change the words from this place to my life holy spirit thou art welcome in my life now welcome him and jesus breathed on them and said receive come on lift your hands thou art welcome in my life Omnipotent Father of mercy and grace. Thou art welcome in my life. Now the music team is just going to play for a few minutes. I'm going to lead you in a simple little prayer. I'm going to pray with you, for you, and then God is going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. There's so many here. There's hundreds of people here. There's no way that we can lay hands on every person. But listen to me. In the upper room, nobody laid hands on anybody but God. God is going to fill you with the Holy Spirit right now, tonight. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Now, I'm going to pray with you. I want you to pray right out loud. Pray with me, Heavenly Father. I give you my life. Everything that I am. All that I have. Every possession. All my relationships. My ego. My pride. The means and manner of my death. I'm willing for the best people in town to think I've lost my mind. But I'm not willing to live another day without Pentecost. I ask you, because Jesus told me I could ask and receive. I'm asking you, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Say it again, fill me with the Holy Spirit. 
Now plead with him. Say, please, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Now go on and just begin to call out to him. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and in the authority of that name, receive the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's flowing into you right now from the top of your head to the sole of your feet. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now just open your mouth and begin to praise Him. As the worship team begins to sing again, don't worry about the music. You begin to receive the Holy Spirit. Open your mouth and praise Him. Praise Him in English, in Spanish, in Portuguese. Praise Him in tongues. Go on and praise Him. Open your mouth and thank God. Thank you, God. Thank you for filling me. Thank you, God. Padre bendito, celestial, damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta noche. Gracias por tu gracia. Glorifica tu nombre en este momento. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you. Glorify your name in this place. We praise you. We praise you. Into la mapalama de fiaco llama bafiano. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Open your mouth and magnify the Lord. He's flowing through right now. I sense darkness is breaking. Bondages are being shattered. Let go of chains. Let them fall. Let them fall. Let them fall to the ground. Now open your mouth and begin to magnify the Lord. Praise Him. Don't even worry about how it sounds. Begin to praise Him. Praise Him. Up the aisles, there are people all the way back there. And up here, go on, open your mouth and magnify the Lord. Go on and praise Him. Up this aisle back here, the Lord is filling you. He's filling you. He's touching you right now. Praise Him. neither the prophet nor a child of a prophet anybody can miss God but I sense in my spirit that there are some dark things that have held people limited your life that have crippled emotionally that have kept you back and away from all that God wants for you and I sense that some of those things are falling to the ground I sense that depression is dropping Fear is being released. It's tight grip on lives are being released. And that right now the spirit, the joy, the power, the grace of God is filling. Let go. Let go of it and receive the Holy Spirit. If that's you, then you just lift your hands up and begin to praise Him. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Praise God. Let all that go. Let it be gone. Let it be gone. Let it drop. Praise God. Praise God. Jesus breaks every fetter. He breaks every feather. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. I sense in my spirit. I guess you could say this in any crowd of any size, but I sense this may be for somebody specific. That there's some couple here tonight that your marriage is just absolutely on the verge of breaking. And that right now, God is preparing to not just fill you as individuals, but to fill your marriage and your home to fill you with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of reconciliation and healing and love and forgiveness. 
If that's you, then join hands with your spouse. Join hands. And every head bowed, if you will, please, all over. Close your eyes. But if that's you, if there's a couple here and you say, the Lord is speaking to us tonight, then I want you to join hands and lift your hands up so I'll know where you are. Will you do that for me? Yes. Yes. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Where there's been anger, receive grace and peace. Where there's been hurt, forgiveness beyond the human capacity to grant it. Receive forgiveness. This marriage, this home, this family, be healed. Be healed. Be healed. Be healed. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Praise you, God. Now, I just feel that if pastor will give me permission, I feel moved to pray, not just for individuals to be filled, but somehow that the air of this room, that this house, the very chairs, I don't even know how to pray it. I just pray that there would be such a fresh inhabiting and inhabiting. Come Holy Spirit, fill this room. Dwell here, stay here, be here. Lord, I pray that there would be people that would literally drive up in the parking lot and say, I, I don't even know why I'm here. I, but I, I have to go in that building. God, I pray that there will be healings, physical, emotional, spiritual healings. God, fill the air, impregnate the atmosphere. So fill us, fill this room. Lord, I pray that there will be such a sense of your presence. Oh, Holy Spirit, thou art welcome in this place. Thou art welcome in this place, this physical place. We welcome you. We welcome you. We know, Lord, there's no church that could contain you. It's not that. But, Lord, that you would so dwell in the air. Lord, that people will just simply walk in and begin to sense your presence as never before. We believe you for it. We thank you for it. We thank you for it. Praise God. Now, I want you to look right up here at me for just a moment. Pastor is going to come in just a moment and give you some of your closing words. But listen to me. I know how Satan works. And I know what he's going to say. He's going to come to you and some of you and say, something may have happened to everybody else up there, but nothing happened to you. Here's the thing. He is a liar and the father of lies. So therefore, when he says that to you, you know that it's a lie, and therefore his lie proves that the truth is that you have received. Amen? You receive by faith. Now, I don't have the ragged old Bible with me tonight that I had in 1975, but let me tell you what to do. Take your Bible and open up to the front page in there and write this date and this time. What time is it? Anybody know? 7.58, about 8 o'clock in the evening, write it, about 8 o'clock in the evening, this date, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Write it down, write it down. And when Satan comes to you with that lie, you open it up and lay your hand on it and say, there it is, it's written right there, it's in my Bible. And then testify to it. When people ask you, why'd you go up there? Don't be a sissy, don't tell them, look, I just wanted to be a better dad or something. You tell him I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It, it, 
it confuses the world and it outrages much of the church. So say it. Say it boldly. I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise God. Pastor, come and lead us. Stay right where you are until Pastor finishes. Everybody, God bless you and God bless Mount Perrin. Can you say, surely it was good to be in the Lord's house tonight? Amen. One more time, can you show your appreciation to Dr. Mark Rutland? What began tonight is not the ending place, it's the starting place of an amazing life and walk that God is going to have in your life. Believing for great, great things. Thank you for being here tonight, tomorrow night. I hope you'll be here 7 o'clock. Bishop Tony Stewart, he pastors City Life Church um, in Tampa, Florida, and he is also serves on the executive committee for our entire denomination. Um, he's a good, good friend of mine. He's been here before and ministered to us, and I know he's got a word for us tomorrow night, and I cannot wait to see you 7 o'clock tomorrow night, and God's going to show up again. Amen? Yeah. Amen. He's doing something great. So if you're visiting with us every service, we have the privilege of speaking a blessing over you that's found in Numbers chapter 6. And that blessing is said when, that is, when you speak that blessing, you literally put the name of the Lord on his people. So I'm going to receive, I hope you'll receive this blessing tonight. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Let's give our response from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. God bless you, folks. Love you. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow.